It's episode 80 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky. Joining me is J.P. Breen and James Anderson, the lead prospect analyst and assistant baseball editor for RotoWire. He's sitting in for Ryan Top today. James, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's uh, it's a cool surprise to be asked to be on with you guys. I mean, I love I love listening, and uh, obviously we're we're all friends offline and online, so it's it's great to be here. Yeah. So d- tell us a little bit about where you write and kind of the stuff you write about. Yeah. So rotowire.com is is a fantasy sports website. Uh, I am, like you said, the lead prospect analyst. So you know, at least fifty percent of what I do is. Uh, and you should be able to hear a train in the background. Um, 50% of what I do is just prospects only. I'm ranking, you know, I, we have a top 400 prospect list at the site and I go in depth on every single team. So a lot of it is just minor league specific, uh, but also, you know, we, we are one of the leaders for fantasy baseball content and I'm, I've got a big hand in that as well. Yeah, awesome. And especially this time of year, we got everybody starting their fantasy baseball draft. So I'm sure you're pretty wow. busy right now. Yes, this is uh, this is the busiest time of the year for me, as we were talking about before the show. Um, well, and I was going to say, I've, I've played in uh, however many dynasty leagues with James. And so I can say that if you are looking, if you are doing a dynasty draft or you're interested in prospects and, and kind of doing it from a fantasy angle, that... Uh, James is one of the people that you need to read. A, because if you play against him, you need to know who to swipe in and get in front of him. But B, if you don't play against him, he he has all the knowledge that you need to be able to beat your friends. Yeah, JP is in the uh, Rotowire Dynasty Invitational, which I started up uh, last year. And yeah, I mean, it's we've we've made some pretty interesting trades over the years. It's always uh, fun competing against him. Yeah, so uh, we have some topics that are going to focus on some, uh, I guess, major league ready prospects for the Brewers today. So uh, we're going to get into that in a few minutes. So uh, you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter. And you'll find that on our Milwaukee Tailgate Twitter bio. James, what's your Twitter handle? It is at real J.R. Anderson. Uh, there's a lot of James Andersons out there, so uh, was had to get a little creative with the, the handle. But yeah, at real J.R. Anderson. So yeah, make sure you follow, especially right now, for all of your uh, fantasy prospect news, follow uh, James there. Uh, finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash Tailgate. Our ball and glove patrons receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast. Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing and their English style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. You know them for the great beers like Dragon Flute, Block Party and their uh, flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. Tokyo Sauna is back, and the citrusy sugar cookie sweet pale ale is in stores now. March 8th is the release of Outer Spaced New England Imperial IPA with passion fruit and peach. That'll be available in stores, so look for that. Uh, March 16th is the taproom-only pilot release of Magically Go (laughs) Yourself, an Imperial Milk Stout brewed with Lucky Charms. I don't know. what do you, James, what do you think of that one? You've spent some time at Carbon (laughs) 4. Um, yeah, that's quite the, that's quite the name. I mean, I, I, I love the, the names that they come up with, uh, for those. I'm, I'm really excited for Tokyo Sauna to be back on the shelves. That's, that's kind of my go-to. So, uh, it's a good time of year. Yeah. And then finally in March, uh, K4 is releasing Radicats New England style IPA. 
That will be available in stores March 25th, just in time for opening day. So you can go grab a six pack of that and take it over to Miller Park. Also get 20% off merch in the Carbon4 web store with the promo code MKE Tailgate. As always, check out carbon4.com for more information. Carbon4 beer brilliance. Milwaukee's tailgate is also sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, check out the Mix Pre 3 and Mix Pre 6. For more information, visit sounddevices.com. Okay, so what are we, like a week, week and a half into spring training, like actual games being played? Yeah, I think it's just over a week because last weekend we were talking about Corey Ray's like first game. So it's got to be a little bit over a week. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're starting to get guys are getting at bats. I think uh, Yelich and Kane and some guys like that were really making their first appearances over the weekend, um, which was good to see. I saw Yelich was hitting some lasers around the field against the Cubs on on Saturday. I don't know if you guys were able to tune in at all. I did not see that. I did see that they uh, put together um you know, close to their opening day lineup uh, for that game, which was which was fun to see. Yeah, JP, have you watched much uh, spring training, or you just kind of uh, check box scores after the fact? I've mostly been checking box scores, but also looking back at some of the highlights. Uh, Lucas Harrisig hit hit a homer the other day. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, uh, we're recording on Sunday, and it's been nice to be able to see. You know, a lot of the guys. Craig Council was talking about Tyrone Taylor, talking about the fact that, you know, he expects to see Tyrone Taylor up in the big leagues this year, which I think goes a long way to, to talking about why we, you know, we talked a lot about why we thought Taylor was added to the 40 man so early and fan fan graphs their their uh, prospect list was talking about how Taylor retooled his swing was one of the kind of the sleeper prospects in the Brewers organization this year. And we, kind of are seeing it early that obviously, you know, the performance is good and the fact that he's getting some base hits, that's all great. But it's nice to hear from Craig Council that they, they're they not uh, being shy about kind of setting expectations and saying that they expect to see him in the big leagues at some point this year. So that was really encouraging. Little things like that have been the the sort of tidbits that I've been trying to, to take away from the, the first few games here. Yeah, so uh, one of the things I wanted to start off with right off the top, since we don't have Ryan here, I figure we can actually have a legitimate discussion about Corey Ray, who's put up some decent stats for his first you know, handful of games in, in spring training. Currently has a 1,200 OPS. He's hit a couple home runs, a double. It's all in 15 at-bats. Really small sample size. But it's early in spring training, so he's getting a shot right now. So I guess, uh, James, we'll start with you since you do a lot of the prospect writing. You know, Corey Ray definitely took a step forward last season after being – um, disappointing initially, I think, to a lot of uh, fans who are watching. Um, is there anything to take away early on from his performance, or at least what he did last year and then leading into the spring training performance as far as what he could uh, produce for the Brewers in 2019? I think it's just a, a really good reminder of just how talented he is. Uh, you know, the power for a guy his size is just kind of off the charts, and yeah, he's flashed that so far this spring. Uh, I mean, the, the speed is just really, really special uh, on the bases. Um, I've seen him live a couple times, and it, it just it really kind of um, – I mean, it, it's top of the scale uh, speed for a guy that's got that kind of power. I mean, his power-speed combo, there just aren't many guys in the minors at all, like even at the top of the prospect rankings. 
that can match up with that. Obviously, there's uh, you know some stuff he's got to work on in terms of just making contact at an acceptable clip. Uh, but last year was definitely a, a great reminder that you know we we shouldn't give up on this guy just yet. JP, do you have any initial thoughts? No. Again, I think one of the things that I always tend to look at for especially early season prospect performances is like what the team is saying about them, right? Because you can get a you can get a good sense for. Um, you know, you'll have Craig Council come out and, of course, say like, yeah, you know, we're really excited about these guys. But one of the interesting things about Corey Ray is that a lot of teammates are actually starting to. I don't know if take notice is the right word. I'm sure they know who Corey Ray is and have played with him in the past in spring trainings, but they're kind of having their eyes opened. Um, but Corey Ray, it's 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 a little bit like and James, you can kind of correct me if, if you are seeing it a little bit differently, but. In a lot of ways, I think Corey Ray offers in in kind of like best case scenario is like almost like what Drew Stubbs was doing, right? Like like extreme good, you know, kind of low to mid 20 homers, but a guy who can steal 20 to 30 bases. And in in the years in which it really works and the batting average is high enough, man, he can put up some nice seasons, but kind of will be that frustrating power speed guy, but gives him, you know. It's a pretty good – Drew Stubbs had a nice career, really. Yeah, you know, I think that you're you're kind of dead on with the, the power and speed uh, comparison there. I think Stubbs was probably a better defender than most people expect Corey Ray to be in center field. So, uh, you know, if, if, if he projected to just be this kind of game-changing defender out there, uh, I think that that would probably allow him to – have an easier path to playing time but if he's kind of more of a plus defender in like left field uh you know that's that's probably the separator i think with the the stubs comparison Uh, i think he's i think he's kind of uh similar to um like bradley zimmer with the the indians where Mm -hmm. you know you just have that power and that speed and you're just you're hoping he hits you're you're not sure if he's gonna hit enough um but i mean the the on-base skills are there and yeah, it's just it's kind of weird that he's as fast as he is, as good of an athlete as he is, and yet you you struggle to find evaluators that expect him to be a, a plus defender in center field. Well, and he was drafted. Well, he played left field in Louisville, so I mean, he wasn't a center fielder in college, correct? Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. It's it's just you expect a guy like that to be a center fielder. I mean, if, if, given his speed. Um, you know, and given his his lack of an arm, I mean, he's not going to be in right, obviously. Uh, but I mean, typically guys with that type of speed are are, are really good and, and center, and he's just you know the instincts aren't quite there. Yeah, no, I mean, and we were talking about Tyrone Taylor a little bit. Um, I guess you know when you see like Ben Gamble or somebody like that as a fourth outfielder for this team, you're kind of expecting them to play in one of the corners. Um, and Lorenzo Cain has missed time in in his career uh i guess who's the guy that they bring up at least to spell yelich because i would assume we kind of assume yelich would move into center field if kane misses time do they bring up uh cory ray or do they bring up tyrone taylor basically as the guy to sit behind yelich if kane's out for any period of time i think it would be taylor you know, I kind of, I kind of see Corey Ray as a guy that's tracking towards making his debut this September. Uh, 
I think Taylor is a guy that they wouldn't mind shuttling back and forth a few times this year. But I think Ray, you know, he's got plenty of work to do still in the minor leagues. I think he could use a full year at AAA. So I think it would be Taylor. Yeah, JP, how much of that attitude might just be attributed to the fact that Ray hasn't played in AAA yet and he just needs another season in the minors? I think that that could be a big part of it. I think Ray is also the kind of guy that we talked about, you know, with with Lewis Brinson for a long time in terms of like, if you want to actually send him to the big leagues, he needs to play. Mm -hmm. And so Tyron Taylor is the kind of guy that you can come in and play a couple days a week and not really feel like you're hindering his development all that much. But uh, Tyron Taylor, I mean, it, it is very clear, both in terms of what people were saying in October after the season last year, once they were talking about fall instructs all the way to the spring, the team likes him. And so there, if you have a guy that you can shuttle back and forth, can handle defensively in center field, and you actually you actually like him quite a bit as a player, um, that is going to allow you to feel much more comfortable with that. And you can kind of let Ray, uh, let his performance and, and kind of dictate what his role is rather than, than kind of allowing his development to be dictated by what's happening at the big league level. Um, and Tyrone Taylor and... I'm not making a comparison in terms of like the actual skill set, but he seems to be kind of the key on Broxton for the, for this year, right? The kind of guy that, um, you know, he, he can come up for a few weeks if, if needed in terms of injuries, but he'll be the first guy sent back down. Um, but if they need somebody to come in and play center field, I think he's going to be the guy. Uh, but I only think that that's really going to happen if, Depending on his performance, I mean, if he hits his way in, then he hits his way in. But I think that Tyrone Taylor is only really going to get called up if something happens to Lorenzo Kane. I think if something happens to somebody at the corner outfield spots, then you're looking at maybe Troy Stokes. You're maybe looking at uh, just kind of filling in with Ben Gamble and Aaron Amperez at the, the corner outfield spots, and they might get a little bit more creative elsewhere. Yeah, so I guess... Um what what do we think the ceiling would be for a Tyrone Taylor if he plays? If, if he does come up, um, I, I think we all kind of agree that Corey Ray probably has a little bit higher ceiling. But does Taylor have maybe a higher floor because he's a, a, a def better defender than Ray is? I, I think that that's right. Uh, you know, I think with Taylor, you're just hoping for quality defense and, you know, offense that's not going to completely sink the ship. Um and I think that he's he's positioned to kind of provide that type of value. Uh, Ray is much further from being a finished product, but definitely has has more ceiling. Yeah, I think that that's that's certainly right. But it it'll be really interesting for me to see what Tyron Taylor is able to do, because in some ways last year, the fact he hit 20 homers, he was able to steal double digit bases. He was, you know, his. his strikeout rate is is quite good i mean i was only 15 percent last year and his iso was over 200 and a lot of it was happening around this narrative that he retooled a swing he's uh finally healthy and he people forget that he was actually a pretty high draft pick and was well thought of coming out of the coming out of the draft but one of the biggest things that's going to happen is we need to figure out how much of that was actually dictated by being colorado springs and in the PCL, it's still hard because you're going to go to places like Reno. You're going to go to like there are other launching pads. It wasn't just, you know, Colorado Springs. But when you're kind of getting into the kind of the meat of what Tyrone Taylor looks like, 
a lot of it is, and and to be honest, and like really unexciting, we don't really know, but there are a lot of really interesting things to pay attention to. Yeah. Okay. So another guy that, you know, we, we've touched on um, how they're going to be affected by some of the moves that were made. Um, I, I think in the past couple of weeks, we've talked more about Mike Moustakis being in the lineup. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, I want to get into uh, that look for Keston Hira this season. Now that Moustakis is, is on the team, they said he's playing second base. Mike Moustakis is not going to platoon at second base. Um, does Keston Hira have a role with Mike Moustakis on the team in 2019. Yeah, and so just to follow up on the last point, because I looked up some stats, which I should have been prepared at the beginning, but uh, Tyrone Taylor only hit 222, 257, 378 away from Colorado Springs last year. He had a, he, he had over 1,000 OPS at home and had a 635 OPS on the road. So we'll need to see a little bit more there as it comes across. Um, but I do think that Keston Hira still has, has a role um, in 2019, even with Mike Moustakis on uh, on the roster, I think if he if he hits the way that he's capable of hitting in AAA, he's going to find he they're going to make sure that he has a spot on the team. Well, so how who I mean, if if everyone's healthy, though, like what what does that mean? Uh, I, I mean, I kind of think that they're, they're treating Kira as sort of like a luxury piece this season where they they don't need anything from him. But if you know, they, they deal with an injury to Moustakis, Shaw, Aguilar, then, then it's easy to see how he, how he slots in. But I mean, if, if everyone's healthy, uh, I don't know. I, I think that they are kind of set. I mean, it's, it's kind of tough to see me or to, to see them bringing him up and playing him like three or four days a week. Um, do, do you see that differently or, or are you just sort of anticipating an injury that opens something up for him? No, it's a good question. I think the biggest thing that I see is if Kesson Hura hit, it hits well enough in AAA and makes it clear that he's ready, I think Moustakas becomes a bench piece. Okay. Right? I mean, I think he's a guy who plays against lefties at third. Um, he's a guy who maybe spells a little, allows, you know, maybe Shaw to move over at first base a little bit. He can kind of take some a day or two at, at second if needed. Um, but I think, I think Moustakas is... If every if Kesson Hura is hitting extremely well, right, and it's obviously an if, but if he hits his way onto the roster, and Travis Shaw plays well, Aguilar is the kind is the guy we saw, especially you know if he's the guy we saw in the first half last year, especially, um, Mustakis is a nice piece to have, but you know you start to look at a team like the Dodgers, or you took take a look at other teams like Mustakis is if he's a bench piece, man, he that that's a nice bench piece to have that you can get creative with. And I think that Keston Hira is able to just step in and really provide overall depth. And then Moustakis is a guy who can play multiple positions and move around. What would Hira have to do to force his way into the lineup? Because he can't just put up kind of like a nice line in AAA. And then somehow we expect like, oh, well, he's the second baseman of the future. He's going to get a shot on this team. Because yeah. when, you're, when you're a team that's competitive, you aren't going to you know, suffer through some growing pains if you don't really have to. So I yeah. guess what would he need to show? What does he need to do to show that he's major league ready? Well, in terms of like, I don't, I don't think there's a specific stat line that's going to make him kind of push his way onto the roster. But I mean, if he's able, if he's able to both hit for average and power, um, and there aren't any questions about his defensive capabilities at second base, I think a a, a good Keston Hira is going to be better than. Uh, 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 you know, Mike Moustak is at second base. 
James, what kind of power do we think that Hira can hit for in the majors, especially when he's breaking in? You know, maybe down the line, I think it's kind of a 20 homer guy. But initially, uh, what's his power outlook? I think it could be 20 uh, kind of right away, especially given the ballpark. Um, You know, I know that people look at his power numbers in the minors and, and it's somewhat underwhelming, maybe just based on his. Uh, kind of name value and everything, but I, I think by the time he gets to the big leagues, uh, you know, it's, I think it's 20 homer power, and then eventually maybe he grows into like 25 homer power. But you know, playing in that ballpark, uh, I mean, he he's a strong guy. I think I think it's going to be uh, kind of right away that he starts hitting for power in the big leagues. Once he's up, I I, th- I think he's definitely got to force the issue. So I don't think they're going to bring him up uh, before he's ready. And by the time he's ready, I think it's 20 homer power. Well, and to to James's point, though, like in terms of saying that Kesson here is a luxury piece, I think that's that's a good way to put it. Right. Like he's he's going to have to. This is now to the point we talked about that Hira was going to be the answer at second base. Moustakas has obviously now changed the calculus on that. Hira still does have a path to playing time if he performs well, but he's a luxury piece in which you've now created redundancies on the roster and you've created quality depth to the point that if, if he doesn't hit his way onto the roster, it's not the end of the world, right? It's not like, well, we were banking on this. We've got other options that we can be happy with, but if he does his hit his way onto the roster, we've got the roster flexibility to still make it work. Yeah. I think this is, this is what really good teams do, right? I mean, the Brewers aren't just trying to win 90 games. They're trying to win like 95 games, 96 games. And uh, you can't be playing like Spangenberg or Hernan Perez every day while you're waiting for your top prospect to be ready. So this just gives them that sort of buffer where they don't they don't need Hira necessarily to win the division. If he forces the issue, then he could help them win the division for sure. But uh, they're just in a really nice spot right now where they're they're not necessarily banking on anything from him. I mean, but like if if Mustakas can actually play second base. We know he can play third base, and we talk about the fact that he is a nice addition to the roster, especially on a competitive team. I mean, I'm shocked that, and I I don't know why I'm shocked about it anymore. But like, I'm shocked nobody went in for Mustakas more than the Brewers did on a one year deal. Yeah, I am too. Um, you know, I think he his relationship with guys like Ryan Braun and Christian Yelich off the field. Uh, probably was going to be a tiebreaker in Milwaukee's favor. So I think a team would have had to, uh, they wouldn't have had to just match the offer. I think they would have had to go over, but um, yeah, I mean, teams just aren't really valuing guys like that on the market these days. Yeah. And we're, we're not going to see any change in that anytime soon. So Moustak is signing a one year deal. It seems like he's going to go through the same thing next season. I would imagine. Can you, I mean, do either of you see this working out any differently for him? Or does he just at some point say, yeah, I'll take a multi-year deal for, you know, $5 million a year or something like that, when he originally went on on the market thinking he was going to be a, you know, 12 to $15 million a year guy? Yeah, I'm not necessarily sure what's going to happen next year. I, I would assume that he's going to be put in the exact same position. But at the same time, like, I just can't figure out why a team like, other than money, I can't figure out why a team like the Marlins isn't like, I'm going to give Musakis a two-year deal and then I'm going to try to flip him in in July. Like it's, it's using money to allow yourself to get assets that can then be spun for prospects. It's not, I just don't know. Like there's no reason why, I don't even know who they're going to play at third base. Like Brian Anderson's not playing at third base. He's going to play in the outfield, I think. Like 
what I don't understand why a guy like Musakas can't be somebody you bring in for two years, 15 million or, you know, whatever it is. And you just have the idea that he is a good professional that teams are going to want in July. I mean, we saw that last year. The Brewers went and actually spent a couple uh, like Brett Phillips and Jorge Lopez are not high end prospects, but they're guys that have passed to the big leagues and can be controlled for six years. I don't understand why another team didn't want to do that unless Moustakis, A, you know, it sounds like he didn't have the offers, but, um, or if he just was like, I'm at the point in my career that I only want to play for a contender, which could certainly be part of it. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's hard to find those teams that you can just slot into because a lot of contenders basically are filling plenty of roles. And, and third base is a relatively deep position, isn't it, James? Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, it's deeper than first base these days. And, uh, you know, I, I think JP's 100% right. I mean, teams should have been interested in doing that. I think the, the money, the money thing is just kind of the, the issue. Teams just are not spending in a manner that we think they probably should. Yeah, so uh, moving on to another prospect that that's going to have a curious season, Mauricio um, Dubon um, is. Well, we kind of expected him to get his his first uh, action last season. He tore his ACL, uh, making his way back to uh, the roster this year. He's got a little bit more defensive flexibility than than a Keston Hira, um, but he's also had some issues this spring uh, with his. Well, or, originally he was just sick. I think is originally what they said. And it turned out he had some like intestinal issue. He spent four days in the hospital. He lost like 15 pounds. Um, for a guy who was looking to, I think, find a role on the major league roster, looked like he was so close to being ready. How much of a setback is this to Mauricio Dubon getting some time in the major league, especially early in the season? Uh you know, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, I think David Stearns came out and said at the winter meetings that he was going to open the year at AAA. Uh, so I think that that's, that's kind of still what's going to happen with him. I, I sort of view him as sort of the the heir apparent to Hernan Perez and uh, just being a, a super, like, overqualified utility player. And I think at, at a certain point, he's going to be a better option than Perez. And, and that... And you'll see him up, but you know this is still I think could use you know a couple months at least at, at AAA, uh, and he I mean he's going to be filling a bench role once he's up unless there's a injury to Orlando Arcia or or if Arcia is just playing horribly uh, offensively then maybe they make a move there. But um, you know I, I think he was always going to open the air at AAA. I think that that hasn't changed and uh, just kind of prevents him from putting on a show early in spring training. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think he his value was never going to be on opening day. I think his value is allowing for, again, a lot of roster flexibility and, and a quality option that's an internal option if something doesn't work, if somebody gets hurt, uh, or if Orlando Arcia is the guy who, you know, was playing the first four months of the season until he kind of his batting average on balls in play kind of picked up to one of the biggest points. But um, I mean, and, you know, we've talked about this in the past, but um, Orlando Arce is uh, like his DRC plus was one of the worst in the league. It was like 56 or something like that, which means if 100 is average, that means that Orlando Arcia was 44 percent worse than the league average hitter at the plate, 
which is a number. What, what's your guys? I, I want to know what your guys' read on the Arceus situation is. Like, it, like how bad would he have to be offensively um, for the Brewers to just kind of run out of patience with that like spot in the order being a, an instant out most times? I mean, is is his defense good enough where they would just be okay with him? doing the same thing he did last year and they just know they're going to get enough production from the top seven spots? Or do you think that there's a legitimate scenario where he's just bad at the plate and they, they don't put up with it anymore? I mean, he's an, he's an excellent defender, but he's not otherworldly where I think you can just say glove only and it doesn't matter what he's doing at the plate. Right, JP? I mean, he's got to show something, even if it's only an 80 DRC plus or something like that, you know, I think they could live with. But if he's, you know, 40 plus points below everybody else, I I don't see how that works. Yeah, I think the Brewers situation is a little bit different because they're trying to compete. But I, I, I have two two different takes on it, I guess. Number one, the Brewers are so good at deploying players for specific skills in specific situations that I could see the organization, even if they don't want to start them at, at shortstop being like, this is a, this is a move we want to make late in games. This is a move we want to have an option to be able to give ourselves both defensive flexibility for shifts, but also to, to kind of shore up things in late game situations, especially, you know, especially in September and beyond that. But you also look at other guys who are basically glove only shortstops that kind of made their career out of out of being quality defenders. You know, you've got uh, you've got Jose Iglesias, who I think just had to sign a minor league deal um, with the Reds, I believe. Um, and then you also have uh, Alcides Escobar, who basically hit himself out of a out of a job but we all we are well aware of how good he is defensively or at least was hey jp how does how does arcia compare to escobar defensively i actually think he's a little bit better but um i don't necessarily know if that's kind of recency bias in my own mind but i i think that he is able to he 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 has the range, and obviously they both have huge, huge arms. But I think Orlando Arcia kind of has a flair for, you know, the incredible that I'd, I'm not necessarily sure that Orlando Arcia had to the same extent. I don't think he's as good as I don't think he's as good as Iglesias. I think Iglesias is is best defensive shortstop in baseball. But um, but yeah, I I think I'd put him a little bit above. I don't know how James feels about it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's Iglesias, and then there's a bit of a gap, and then I would go Arcia just by a hair over over Escobar. Um, yeah, so it'll it'll be interesting to see how that plays out this season. And again, well, how would you say that like Dubon compares to Arcia? So you know, if Arcia's not hitting at all, they can bring Dubon up for his glove as well. But I mean, I don't think we're expecting like a huge batting line from Dubon by any means. Uh, you know, I think roughly our low expectations for Arcia before he kind of bottomed out last season would be around what we'd hope for Dubon hitting, you know, maybe an empty batting average and that's about it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the gap between Arcia and Dubon defensively is probably enough of a cushion for Orlando to, to kind of hold the job, even if he's really struggling just because I mean, Dubon, probably will get to a point in you know 
three, four months where he could reasonably be a better hitter than Arcia. But I mean, I, I, I think Arcia's arm, Arcia's uh, range at, at short, I think it's just a, a, a big gap between what Dubon can do. I mean, Dubon might be able to be a, a plus defender at second base and then just kind of a passable guy at shortstop. And if he's not, if he doesn't take like a big step up offensively where he's hitting for, you know, double digit power, uh, then I just, I, it's tough for me to see him ever looking like the better overall option. I think, I think for me, Dubon is, is most valuable because again, right. He's the super utility guy. If you, if he needs to be able to come in and be the everyday guy at shortstop, that means something's gone wrong. Or it means that he's like developed to a point in which you can't keep him off it, which, you know, if that happens, great. Nobody's going to argue about that. But the fact that when he was Dubon was in the AFL, he was playing some, some center field and he was doing it quite well. He can play second base. Uh, He's a plus defender at second. He can handle shortstop, but Dubon's Dubon's big value to the team right now is the fact that as the team is currently constructed, he's the only other guy that can really handle shortstop. I mean, Hernan Perez is a guy that you can you can sit there a little bit. That's fine. I just had to look it up. Spangenberg hasn't played shortstop. He played one game at shortstop in his in his big league career. Um, Dubon's kind of the guy, right? Which is why I was talking a lot about you know your your Estrubel Cabrera's your Jed Lowry's like another guy who is big league proven can handle shortstop if Orlando Arce is is kind of taking a step backwards but as it as it is currently constructed you're going to ride with Orlando Arce and and Dubon is the guy you're hoping is able to step up and be the guy at shortstop if you need him but I guess Tyler Saladino I guess you'd probably look at him as a guy who can play shortstop as well but like unless he gets on his what one month run in which he was just really good with the bat uh, that people didn't really take a look at his defense too carefully. I don't know. I, so I think, I think Orlando RC has got the job and unless he just absolutely craters and the rest of the team, Grandall bringing in Moustakis. Now the, now the entire team is basically uh, <laughs> offensively competent other than, uh, potentially Arcia, and if you're like, yeah, in the eight spot, we've got we've got a little bit of a black hole. You can deal with that a lot more than saying the you know the six, seven, and eight spots are an absolute travesty, like they were for a large part of last year. So I think that gives them a little bit more flexibility, and just the roster construction is is basically Orlando Arcia is going to be the guy uh, unless something really bad happens. Well, and how much does the Brewers bench cover for Arcia? You know, we, we saw a lot of shorter starts from the starters last year, which meant that you would get a pinch hitter in earlier than normal. Do they have a deep enough bench basically to turn that pitcher spot into a better offensive player to kind of offset Arcia for the season? I mean, is that something that can legitimately happen or, you know, is that just a little bit of wishful thinking? I. Uh... I think that's a little bit of wishful thinking. Uh, I think JP nailed it with the the Grandal signing sort of covering a little bit for Arcia, where you're getting a legitimate offensive impact from that, that seventh spot in the lineup. So the eighth spot being uh, pretty poor doesn't, doesn't hurt you as much. I mean, maybe, you know, they, I like their bench. I just don't see like the, the, big time impact pieces coming off the bench and, and really lifting the offense. I think 
the bench pieces kind of fit, but um, I mean, they're bench pieces for a reason. Yeah. I mean, are you, are you just kind of saying that like just the, their production is able to make up for it? Or are you saying that like, well, when you, when you have a starter going four to five innings, as right. opposed to saying we need a six inning quality start and they're going to get, you know, probably at least two at bats or something like that before they get pulled. You know, if you got that starter only getting one at bat and then the next time, you know, their spot in the lineup comes up, unless you're scoring a ton of runs, you know, you can pull them for someone off the bench. Is that going to add enough during the season to cover up for, you know, subpar production from the, the spot before them in the order? Yeah, I yeah, I, I agree with James on that, but I also don't think it needs to make up for it, I guess, is another way of saying it, right? Like. I think that Orlando Arcia is able to fulfill a role on the team as it is currently constructed in a way that's positive. Um, and I don't necessarily know what, I mean, I don't necessarily know what the bench is going to be, I suppose is part of the issue, right? Like if you've got, if you've got Eric Thames on the bench and you can bring somebody on with his kind of bat, um, then, you know, that's totally different than saying we're going to make some room for Spangenberg, which. Well, then, I, I assume the bench at the beginning of the season is everybody without options. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and then as the season goes on, they'll they'll kind of whittle it down and, you know, shuttle the guys back and forth and kind of dump the anyone who's just not productive and out of options. That's when they'll make those hard decisions. Yeah. So, um, oh, we do have a, a Patreon question from uh, Brian Polakowski. He's asking about Jacob Nottingham. Uh, he said, is first base a possible path for Nottingham to make it to the big leagues, or was that just a, an experiment early on in um, spring training? I mean, I think it just gives them a little bit more flexibility if, if Nottingham is on the 25-man roster at some point, his ability to play somewhere else other than catcher uh, gets him like an avenue into the lineup as, as kind of a replacement late in games. But uh, I mean, there, there's, there's no way he's going to be a, a better option than uh, Aguilar and Thames or Braun for that matter. I mean, I think uh, he's, he's mostly just a catcher. Yeah. I think if, I think if Nottingham was good enough to carry first base, he'd be already up on the, he'd be already up, right? Because the offensive bar in terms of what is acceptable at first base and, and at catcher is such a big, a big jump. And Nottingham has actually improved as a defensive catcher to the point that he's like, you know, he's passable. And so if his bat was good enough that, you know, first base was something that the team was actually looking at, I think he'd already be up. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I think it was just an experiment and, and getting guys, at first base, we see catchers all of a sudden take take first base a lot. Um, so I wouldn't be reading anything into that all that much. And there's no way in my mind that Nottingham is a better option at first base than Eric Thames. So, well, also spring spring training, they're just trying to get guys at bats. And I think early on, especially the guys who you know aren't likely to be on the roster, get them on the field somewhere, get them a few at bats early until you know some of the the you know starters that you know are going to be there the rest of the season start start getting their at bats their plate appearances you know a couple weeks into camp so well right you know so that that's uh an issue as well but actually looking at catcher okay so you have grandal who's going to be the full-time catcher uh then you have pina and kratz are kind of battling it out for that backup position i mean nottingham doesn't really have a spot on this major league roster behind the plate this season no uh 
I mean, I'm I'm interested in that that battle though between Kratz and and Pena. I mean, they're both out of options. Uh, you know, I I liked what Kratz brought as kind of a, a backup, especially down the stretch last year. I think he's a really really good pitch framer and obviously a, a good clubhouse presence. But, but you know, maybe he would be more accepting of going to AAA than Pena would. I, I'm I'm not sure. I'm I'm interested to see how that shakes out. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think Pena has done so much more than I think even we, we expected when he he was what the player to be named later in the K Rod deal and um coming from the Tigers. And I think everyone just kind of saw him as a as a throw in piece and he was able to come in and actually be a nice player for a while. And the the thing is everything I like about Eric Kratz. Manny Pena also supposedly brings that, right? Like, he is a good pitch framer. He's not as good of a pitch framer, according to the numbers, as Eric Kratz. But he's got a great arm. He's able to handle the pitching staff. Uh, the pitchers clearly like him. But Eric Kratz was, like, he was regularly getting in. He was able to to adapt to the pitching staff immediately when he came up. There's a reason why he's continuously bounced around. He's, what, 38? Something like that. And I think he he's 39. 39 and he like continuously gets uh either uh minor league deals with with major league invites you know or is able to kind of bounce around whether it's with the yankees or elsewhere in terms of being on a big league roster he is able to bring a lot of the things that you want in a backup catcher um and especially when you have somebody like grandall who is going to take the lion's share of starts kratz is kind of a nice piece to be able to have there but at the same time it it would feel I don't know if a waste is the right word, but it would it would feel really underwhelming to just like DFA somebody like Manny Pena. Yeah. You know, I, I have to ask because it keeps coming up. There are so many good clubhouse guys on this team. Mm-hmm. Who are the bad clubhouse guys that they could actually like send down and not have to worry about everybody being angry about? Because currently right now, it seems like they have more than 25 guys that everybody wants to see in the clubhouse every day. <laughs> that's a that's a yeah. funny question i um, mean just at, at a certain point you know we keep saying like oh the, this is a good clubhouse guy you know the team would be really disappointed if they're going to go down but there is just a reality that like good clubhouse guys are going to get sent down because you can't just keep everybody on the squad even if everybody gets along so well how do they yeah, make yeah. those decisions what do they do or, or are we making too much of it well, no, I would say I think for me that actually shows one thing that we've talked about the Brewers and especially Craig Council have been really conscious of. They they value good clubhouse guys. They value guys like Brent Suter, even if they're not on on the, the roster because they're on the DL, being in the dugout every single day, standing up and and being there. It's they're very interested. And we t- we talked a lot about the fact that like Aguilar and, and Aaron Perez were very vocal about the fact that Orlando Arcia getting sent down was a big deal for them, that they were like, yeah, we're missing something without him. And in some ways, I know that we talk about like, are you afraid then to send guys down? But for me, it's actually a really positive sign that Craig Council and the team have really done a nice job building a good clubhouse culture. And they they prioritize that, which is perhaps a reason why they brought in Moustakis and not somebody else. They knew what Moustakis brought to the clubhouse. They valued it. They know that Moustakis buys into the idea that, you know, he might not play every day as it comes down, that they're going to need everybody on the roster. And if he doesn't play for a while, that Moustakis knows 
he still could be needed down the stretch and he's not going to necessarily sulk about it. That's so I think it's actually much more of a positive. It doesn't answer your question, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of a guy that, that really, you know, is below average in, in that regard. I mean, it's, it's really a, a great collection of guys and you can tell that they've uh, prioritized it. And I mean, they had Eric Sogard and Eric Kratz on the roster at, at one point last year. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say like, and this isn't even really fair, but I mean, one of the guys you heard about potentially clashing with guys for a long period of time is Ryan Braun. And I think that Ryan Braun has actually developed into one of the key pieces in the, in Mm -hmm. like being a mentor to younger players. Um, You know, he's consistently out in the, in, in the city doing, doing work. Like, you know, like back when we, when we used to do disciples of Euchre, like we had readers sending stuff that like, Ryan Braun was doing not even off on the record in terms of community service work and sending in pictures of just like him stopping into children's hospitals and doing all this stuff with his wife. And um, well, and he was one of the big guys this, this summer with Yelich when you yeah. had the uh, fires out in California, they were all together, you know, raising money for that. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Braun's been humbled. Braun's gone through a lot. I think, you know, he is savvy enough to know that he has to, you know, be more of a team leader because he has his past hanging over him at all times. Well, and I think I think the other thing with Brian Braun, you see it every single time he gives an interview on camera. Now he says nothing. He will he will he'll give the blandest veteran answer that he can possibly give about everything. Well, Doug Melvin took it to him when he called him Deputy Braun, and I think that's when he learned his lesson. How many <laughs> years ago? That that was a decade ago now. I was say, that was a long time ago. So he, you know, he knows not to polish off that badge anymore. Otherwise, he's going to get smacked down by the front office. So, well, because then, or you get like a kind of a reputation like Brian McCann. Yeah. So, um, we do have a question uh, from Bonner Time on Twitter. He asks, "Which group of B relievers, Group B relievers, uh, Williams, Barnes, Claudio, Wall, do you see is most likely to move into Group A with your Jeffress, Hater, and Canables?" And I guess on the flip side, I'm going to ask this. Out of Jeffers, Hader, and Knable, who do you kind of see as the most volatile going into the season as well? Uh, well, the second part of that question, you know, I, th- I think it's Jeffers, just based on the way the postseason ended, and just you know, you look at his track record year to year. Uh, he's capable of of brilliance, but you know, it's it's not a as steady of the a track record. I mean, I, I know Abel got sent out just kind of based on the way he finished the year. I, I, I you know, if he if he's pitching like that, I just don't really see it. Uh, for the first part of the question, uh, I think it's Wall, and he might not even start the year in the big leagues. Uh, I just think that there's some upside there. Whereas I kind of think I know who the other guys are at this point. I don't know if there's kind of a, another level they can get to, whereas I think Bobby Wall uh, has legitimate, you know, eighth inning upside. And I think that was a really great acquisition. Yeah. I think the only thing that's going against wall and like, I don't know, I haven't seen any update to it, but the fact that he, he went down with a knee injury, like to the point that he needed an MRI. That was, was that Saturday or was that Friday that he ended up going down with a knee injury? I missed that. Honestly, yeah. so he he appeared in, in some game either Friday or Saturday and ended up like uh, leaving with a knee injury and, and ended up having to go get an MRI with it. 
Um, so that could be something that impacts. But of course, obviously, beyond this year, there's still a question of like, it's not like Wall suddenly becomes a terrible pitcher just because he has a knee injury. So the, he could still move into it. For me, I'm. I mean, I'll take the, I'll take the unconventional route, and I'll say I actually think it's Claudio. Um, I mean, we've seen Claudio miss bats. His his changeup is is good. If he if they can use him in a in a position that allows him to best utilize the fact that he is. I mean, he's got funky delivery, and especially if you're bringing him out around Hader, Canable, Jeffress, you know, Barnes, dudes who are throwing 97, 98 with big with big curveballs or sliders, and then suddenly you got Claudio coming out throwing like 84 with just like a a great changeup. That's a weird transition to make. Yeah, I had, a, uh, I had a buddy bring that up when when Claudio was on the mound. He's he said, "Can you imagine facing Claudio one inning, and then they bring in like Hader the next inning?" Yeah, that'd be it, it would that'd be nightmare. Well, especially because Claudio's really got a big loopy delivery, really low arm slot and everything like that. If you have Hater coming in with his, you know, high impact twirl basically coming towards uh, towards you at home plate, it yeah, that's going to be a big difference in the way that ball is coming at you. Well, and like Claudio has shown with Texas that he can miss bats at a high level and he can actually be quite good as a big league reliever. And last year, and we talked about it when we signed him. Um, Last year, it looks like the numbers suggest he wasn't as bad as as his numbers showed last year. But um, for which members of Group A might might come down for me, it's still I've still got big big questions in terms of Jeffress. I don't know why the fact that in in it's a broken record, and I apologize for saying it again, but I don't know why all of a sudden he went away from a split change last year. It was it was his best pitch for the vast majority of the year, and he just wouldn't throw it. Um. And so I don't, it's like, did he lose confidence in it? Did they try to change something? What, you know, was he not feeling, was his arm not feeling right? I don't know. There are a lot of questions. He was, he was used really heavily last year and suddenly we saw him struggle with his command, but then completely abandon one of his best pitches. And so for me, I'd like to be able to see those things kind of come, come up. And then his historical volatility that James is, is highlighting, I think is exactly right. Okay, so we do have a, a question kind of piggybacking off of that from Allspurge on Twitter. He asks, uh, who's likely to step into a higher leverage relief role out of Guerra, Barnes, Williams, or Wall? Kind of the same question. But we got Guerra and Barnes um, also thrown into the mix. We don't quite know what their roles are going to be, if Barnes is even going to be in the rotation, if he's going to be back in the bullpen. Um, is there a high leverage reliever in that group that you can see moving in if Jeffress or Canable for that matter, because we've seen Canable have periods where he was very ineffective that they can move in and kind of fill in that back end role. And I guess we're all just assuming Hader never hits a bump in the road. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely not uh, a high leverage role open right now. I mean, Barnes has pitched in, in that type of role before. So I think he, uh, makes some sense as an answer there. But, I mean, we also, you know, it's not like there's nine rotation spots. So, I mean, somebody that is overqualified to be in the bullpen might end up being in the bullpen, and, and that might be the answer. Well, and I think we also saw Guerra, and, yeah, it wasn't a huge sample last year, but he did move to the bullpen and was was quite good um, for, for his couple of starts there. So I actually think that Junior Guerra might be a guy who can come in and, and – kind of just unleash the fast uh, unleash the fastball kind of really hone in on the fact that he can he can throw a splitter and it sounds like he actually might be kind of messing with the changeup grip rather than a splitter grip um, I think probably for control reasons 
But um, yeah, I think Guerra is a, is a guy who could potentially make the transition to to the bullpen. I say that really with trepidation because the entire offseason last year, I made the exact same argument about Willie Peralta and then he was terrible. <laughs> and uh, but then actually was decent with the Royals out of the bullpen. So, you know, isn't Peralta the projected closer for the Royals this year? Well, yeah, but I'm not necessarily sure that that's a reflection of his ability. <laughs> that's a that's a Ned Yost call. Well, yeah. from a fantasy outlook, though, I think people need to know that, right? You got to know who your uh, who your potential closers are. Well, yeah, Brad Boxberg is there now too. Um, so they've got a couple of mediocre options uh, to choose from. Brad, hey, Brad me- me- can like have a fifteen percent walk rate whenever he wants. <laughs> Man, me- mediocre pitchers get saves too. So you know that's <laughs> that's how that's how that works. Is you can be really, really just middle of the road and rack up those saves and you have at least some significance for fantasy baseball players. Um, any other mediocre players or uh, relief pitchers we should look for to get saves? <laughs> like who's the most mediocre guy you expect to get like 25 to 30 saves? Uh, you know, somebody for the Mariners, uh, whether it's Hunter Strickland or Anthony Swarzak or uh, whoever's getting saves for them is going to be pretty mediocre. Um, yeah. I mean, there's just look at the look at the bad teams, and you'll find someone mediocre in the ninth inning. Um, I mean, Will Will Smith is probably going to get saves again this year for. Oh, he was yeah. pretty good last year. <laughs> I know. I'm. That's a yeah. pretty bad team, though. That he'd be getting that, saves for. That is a pretty bad team. I mean, who's who's going to be the the closer for Baltimore? Is it finally going to be uh, Michael Givens? Yeah, he's uh, very very mediocre. Yeah. Uh, and he'll be he'll be getting saves all year long. But let me tell you, in dynasty leagues, if you've stashed Michael Givens for the last four <laughs> years, it's finally going to pay off. And then uh, then Hunter Harvey's going to come up towards the end of the year and take the job away. I would imagine, yeah. Oh yeah, talking relief pitchers—that's always fun to do, right? That's, <laughs> Steve, that's... Wants, Steve wants to put a pencil right in his eye. <laughs> that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm marking this down to see, okay, what can I cut out from the podcast today? Oh, we, we had five minutes of uh, mediocre reliever talk. So uh, I mean, You're the one who asked the questions. So I did. I did. Yeah, don't even complain. About I was it. bringing it around to fantasy baseball. You know, yeah. again, we're, we're in that time of year, and I think people are going to have some uh, uh, questions about that. And uh, I know we've been – JP and uh, Ryan and I have been having discussions about getting a league going this year. So uh, keep listening and pay attention to that. And we will probably next week have an announcement about it. Yeah, we're just trying to get the scoring and and kind of the, um, you know, the overall structure for the league in terms of how we're going to make sure that people have an opportunity to join it. But yeah, there's going to be Milwaukee's tailgate uh, fantasy league this year. We're just putting the final touches on it and uh, we'll give you the information next week. Yeah. So uh, we'll have... Well, we got to figure out a way to to whittle down the people who want to be in it so we can get everybody involved that wants to be in there or at least as many as possible. So I do have one last uh, Patreon question uh, from Adam Post. He said, I'd like to start listening to another baseball podcast in addition to this one. Do you guys have any recommendations? James, I know you kind of said that you've you you make appearances on a bunch of podcasts, so I I don't know if you have a few you want to plug. Well, yeah, I mean, it just kind of depends what what you're looking for. Uh, obviously, a lot of the ones that I'm on have kind of more of a fantasy spin to them. Um, you know, Fangraphs puts out a, a good just regular baseball podcast. Uh, 
effectively wild, I think is, is still out there. Um, but for just, you know, fantasy ones, Rotowire does, does a, a few that I, I'm on. And, uh, I like, uh, my friend Chris Welsh does a, a prospect podcast, uh, that's called prospects one, uh, which is a, a pretty good podcast. Uh, I mean, there's, there's just so many of them out there. Um, I mean, I, I've been on probably dozens of podcasts in the past couple of years, and, and there's there's just no shortage of them. JP, do you have any recommendations for other, other baseball podcasts? I don't, man. I only listen to a couple of podcasts, and they're, uh, they're soccer-related. And then, you know, but unless... Well, no, I guess it's only a game, uh, uh, the NPR podcast that uh, Craig Calcaterra is on uh, quite a bit. Um that one is a, a good podcast to listen to. I've, I've kind of listened to that one a few times, but the vast majority of ones I listen to are ones that are not necessarily going to coincide with what people are hoping to get. It's it's hard. Well, and again, we were talking about this before because we saw this question come in, and when we you know talk every week about the Brewers on a podcast, to then go out and listen necessarily every single week to somebody else talking about it isn't priority number one at all times but yeah effectively wild has been around for a while um if you want something entertaining what was the goldstein uh podcast up and in yeah up and in in terms of like going back and doing a deep dive if into you, there yeah if you want to go back and and hear just a good discussion about two guys who at the time were scouts and are now in in front offices with goldstein and jason parks um so yeah, I- I would rather listen to old episodes of Up and In than like ninety five percent of of current baseball podcasts. So. Yeah, yeah. I so, mean, some like of the, the specific is, issues they would have been talking about are dated, but or you know, like players and stuff like that. But a lot of the the other stuff they addressed around baseball, I think, would be relevant to listen to. Yeah, and I think I think some of the best parts about Up and In were uh, a actually parts where they like ventured and didn't talk about baseball for a bit. Um, but um, one of the things that that I think. So Kevin was obviously fantastic for so so long in terms of talking about pro- prospects and and his process is is very very good. His he's has a way of being able to kind of organize information. Uh, but like Jason is one of the best people I have ever met and talked to in terms of being able to break down really complex thoughts and theories about player development and in terms of scouting and being able to actually present it in a way that's digestible and interesting to listen to he's it it was one of his best it's it's one of the things that made him a, a go-to um obviously the podcast great but a go-to at baseball prospectus when he was there is he was able to really dive into complex things and do it in a way that was entertaining but do it in a way that actually was able to convey the information in a digestible way and all of that is still one of the best parts of up and in um skip the one that i'm on <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, don't listen to that one yeah jp was on uh that was after uh the granky trade right yeah that was after like i didn't know how to talk on you know in general <laughs> so yeah it wasn't it wasn't fantastic but that was uh, relatively early in their run too wasn't it yeah well so kevin had this big thing so when it ended up happening with the granky trade and all of that um kevin had said like he was like well Either this dude just made the biggest mistake and he's no longer relevant, or he just got really lucky. And uh, and so like we ended up just talking about kind of the the process and what ended up happening. The fact that the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel called me that night and ended up like cussing me out for a little bit. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it was 
obviously they were great. They've been great to me for, for many years. But um, And then once you were finished with that interview, you had to go finish your SAT prep, right? Because oh, what man, were you, like 17 at the time? <laughs> no, I wish. Um, no, I had to. I don't even remember what was happening. It, it was right does, around Christmas. And it I do does remember feel that. that long ago now, though. It, yeah, well, it does feel a long time ago. I, uh, but one of the biggest things that I remember is that um, my my lovely wife was uh, annoyed that like I was not. It was right around Christmas, and we were at my my folks' place for Christmas, and I was like not. We were like supposed to go somewhere, and then I ended up like not going somewhere, and then was like really distracted for a long time, and then the next morning, um, they ended up spelling my name wrong on ESPN. So it was solid. <laughs> Those quality fact checkers at ESPN. So that's always good to see. Okay. So after that trip down memory lane, we're going to wrap up the show for this week. Uh, JP, do you want to do a thanks to the new patrons? Certainly do. We got uh, Jonathan Fabry and we've got Bill Reinhardt. Huge thank you. Um, we're going to have hopefully the, the minor league uh, extra podcast coming out next week. Ryan and I are going to be putting that together. And we're going to hopefully have two interviews that I've been trying to um trying to coordinate for quite a while and hopefully have those coming out for 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 patrons um as well so be on the lookout for all that kind of stuff and yeah huge thank you to both both jonathan and uh and bill yeah so uh don't forget you can join our patreon by visiting patreon.com slash mke tailgate patrons at the ball and glove level receive the monthly minor league extra podcast as always follow us on twitter at mke tailgate follow james on twitter say your uh, twitter handle again Real J.R. Anderson. And anywhere else they should check for uh, stuff you write? Uh, we know uh, Rotowire. Any- mean, I'll tweet out all the links from there, but uh, yeah, just, I mean, you can go to rotowire.com. Uh, we have free 10 day trials. You don't have to give us a credit card. Um, but yeah, this is a, a great time of year to kind of dip your toe in that water. Yeah, so uh, make sure you go check out that uh, great, great fantasy content. We are in fantasy baseball season. Check out all that stuff. Uh, from James. Don't forget, you can submit questions to Milwaukee's Tailgate at uh, milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. And also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and we're on Spotify. You can also leave reviews and help people find the podcast, which is great at this time of year when everybody's looking for new baseball podcasts to listen to. Uh, Make sure to give us a shout if anybody asks about Brewers Podcast. So, Uh, Thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.